If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, um, the little black ones under your chairs are our gifts to you. We'd love for you to take one home tonight. So Luke chapter 2, and we are going to be in verses 1 through 14. Luke 2, 1 through 14. And the title of the sermon today is From Humility to Glory. Well, in the United States, we often hear about people going from rags to riches, meaning that they've gone from nothing to something, from poverty to wealthy, from unknown to well-known, from the bottom of the totem pole to the top. Well, tonight's text is one of the most well-known texts of Christmas, and it's that kind of story, except you could say that it's a riches to rags, and then back to riches story. And it's true, all of it. And this story isn't a story with no bearing on our lives today. It's the most important story in human history, and it affects every single one of us. In fact, our historical timeline centers around this event. Of course, we're talking about the birth of Christ. Every year before it is labeled B.C., before Christ. And every year after it is labeled A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Whatever you decide to believe about Jesus' birth, you can't merely dismiss it as an unimportant event. Jesus' life and death changed history. And so tonight, we'll take some time to ponder the birth of this child on this day. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord, Luke 2, 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first generation when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So, before we get to the text, 
I want us to remember where this child came from, the riches part. This child came from heaven, fully God, the king of heaven, seated on a throne, being worshipped 24-7 by angels. Glory beyond all imagination. That's where this child came from. Now, take a close look at verses 1 through 7 again. Luke, the author of this gospel, who was a physician and had a knack for detail, makes sure to tell us in verse 1 that this all happened under the reign of Caesar Augustus. That might not be so important in our minds today, but to the original readers, they would have known that this was a horrible, horrible time for God's people. They had absolutely no power. They were under the oppressive thumb of the Roman government, and they were controlled by Caesar Augustus himself. Who was Caesar Augustus? He was the most powerful man in the world at that time. The Roman Senate called him the son of a god, and the poet Virgil touted him as the son of the deified who will make a golden age again. God's people were being oppressed by this guy. They were a people with no glory and no power. But God used this oppressive government for his own purposes, didn't he? He used them to fulfill a promise made all the way back in Malachi or in Micah 5:2. Micah 5:2 says, "But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." Uh, understand this. Jesus's family was not living in Bethlehem. They were in Nazareth of Galilee, which is about a hundred miles away from Bethlehem. And God used these historical government officials to move Joseph and Mary back to Joseph's hometown right at the right time so that prophecy would be fulfilled. God isn't phased by powerful, oppressive governments or emperors. He accomplishes his purposes and even uses them to do it. But notice how Luke tells this story. Mike McKinley notes that these opening verses take us on kind of a, a downward spiral of power and influence. In, in verse 1, we've got Augustus, the embodiment of ruthless power and privilege. Verse 2, Quirinius, who was a regional governor, but still powerful. Verse 4, We've got Joseph, who's a poor but a free man. Then verse 5, Mary, an unmarried pregnant woman. And then in verses 6 and 7, this baby. It'd be hard to imagine a less powerful, less privileged person on the planet at that moment than this infant sleeping in a feeding trough for livestock. Luke wants us to see just how lowly this baby was. He's come from riches to rags. Consider this. 
prior to this moment, the Son of God was rich beyond all comparison, richer than Augustus could ever imagine. Yet, he becomes human. That, in and of itself, would be an incredible condescension. The true Son of God has left heaven to come to earth under the oppressor's thumb to be born to a virgin in a backwater town and to be placed in a manger. This is absolute humility. The humbling and the emptying spoken of in Philippians 2 has begun in this moment. And I want us tonight to consider why he did this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8-9 that it was a grace to us. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And to be 100% clear here, we're not talking about financial riches. We're talking about spiritual riches, which are eternal. Money comes and goes. When you die, you can't take it with you. But spiritual riches last forever. By becoming poor, by leaving heaven to come to earth, by moving from riches to rags, Jesus makes it possible for us to become rich for eternity. His birth makes it possible for our spiritual bank accounts to go from eternally in debt to wealthy beyond comparison. This birth of this child is one of three of the most important moments in history, alongside his death and his resurrection. So let's keep looking on in the text. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, in the same region where the shep- uh, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. This is awesome. Typically, when a king is born, there's great fanfare, and, and the famous and wealthy are all invited to attend the birth. They're the first to know. But this child's birth, it's first revealed to shepherds by an angel. I want us to see these two truths. First, shepherds weren't the rich and famous. They were the average Joe. They were the everyman. And that's the point. The spiritual riches that this child came to bring are for everyone. They're not just for the rich and powerful, those who typically have no sense of their need. These riches are for those who realize their bankruptcy. They're for those who are lowly and see their need for salvation. This child's birth was first announced to shepherds. But the other side of the coin, this child's birth was announced by an angel. I mean, think about the most famous, powerful person that you can imagine in this moment. Now, 
Imagine if that person announced the birth of your child. That'd be pretty special. It would say something about the importance of the child. The most famous, powerful person in the universe is a blip on the radar, a grain of sand on the seashore compared to an angel. And an angel is who announces the birth of this child. This child is special. He's unique. He's unlike anyone who's ever been born before or since. I love what the angel says to them. Look at verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel says, I bring you good news. Good news. Guess what? This word, good news, it's the word uangelizo. It's the word that we use for gospel. The angel isn't just announcing any news here. This is the greatest news in the history of the universe. He's saying, behold, I bring you gospel. And it's a gospel of great joy. Friends, if the good news of Jesus Christ doesn't bring you great joy, you're not understanding it. The truth that Jesus came to earth to live a perfect life, to die as a sacrifice in our place, and to rise from the grave to give us victory, it's incredible. Our hearts should be overflowing with joy, and not just any joy, great joy. This word attached to joy is the word megas. You can hear the word mega in there. Great, loud, big, mega joy. And look who this gospel of great joy is for. For all the people. For all the people. And this this isn't a statement of universalism here. The gospel is only good news for those who repent and believe. But what is being said is this. Jesus didn't just come to save a small group of people or one race or one type of person. No, he came to save all kinds of people. That's fantastic news to the everyman shepherds. That's fantastic news for us tonight. Jesus, this uniquely born child, came to bring eternal spiritual riches for anyone and everyone who will repent and believe. Maybe that's you tonight. It doesn't matter how far gone you are. It doesn't matter if you've never been to church in your life. It doesn't matter how big of a sinner you are. You can turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and be forgiven forever. This very instant, behold, good news of great joy for all the people. This is the message of Christmas. And look at what the angel says next to further define this gospel news. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ? The Lord. So much truth 
packed into one small verse. First, notice the descriptors here. Born this day. Born this day. It it happened on a real day. A day in history. Not a, a mythological day. Or once upon a time. It happened on a specific day. John Piper notes that it was a day planned in eternity before the creation of the world. Indeed, the whole universe. With untold light years of space and billions of galaxies was created and made glorious for this day and what it means for human history. Second, not only did it happen in a specific day, it happened in a real place. The city of David. Not in Narnia. Not in Middle Earth, not in Wonderland, in Bethlehem, six miles from Jerusalem. It still exists today, and it's where King David's father Jesse lived. It's where David grew up. This birth happened on a real day and in a real city in history. Everything about this is as real as it gets. That's what Luke's trying to tell us. Then, look at what the angel says next. Real day, real place, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the only place in all of the scriptures where all of the titles for Jesus are brought together. Savior, Christ, Lord. Savior, Christ, Lord. Let's take those one at a time. First, Savior. As was prophesied to his father Joseph in Matthew 1, 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This child is a savior, and not just any savior. He didn't come to earth to save us from poverty or from a lack of earthly comforts. No, it's way more important than that. He will save his people from their sins. If you've ever sinned against God, you need a Savior. That's all of us. Again, through this child's sacrificial death on the cross, through his burial and his resurrection, he saved his people from their sins. If he came only as a moral example to us, his salvation is only temporary. But if his death actually atones for our sins, our most significant debt, an eternal debt, is paid for us. That's the salvation that this child came to accomplish. He's Savior. Second, he's Christ. This is the Greek word that means anointed one, Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one that God's people have been looking for since Genesis 3.15. He's the one who would ultimately bring rest. He's the one who would redeem. He's the Messiah, the Christ. So he's Savior and he's Christ. Third, he's Lord. He's God. He's the maker of all and the ruler of all. He's completely authoritative and sovereign. He's the Lord. Again, this is the meaning of Christmas. A real day, a real city, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. 
and an angel proclaims his true identity to shepherds. Good news of great joy for all the people. Savior, Christ, Lord. He's so much more than an obscure Jewish man or just a good prophet. Our eternal lives depend on this Jesus proclaimed by angels. Then, if, if one angel far supersedes the most powerful human on earth, look what happens next. Verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom, with whom he is pleased. Can you imagine experiencing something like this? I remember as a child going to Disneyland, or maybe it was Epcot, I don't remember. But I remember going there and experiencing their laser light show along with the fireworks. It was unbelievable. You've got to understand that I grew up in a little town called Gaiman, Oklahoma, a town of about 7,000 people in the middle of nowhere. I had never seen anything like that before. I'm standing there at Disneyland in awe and amazement. I stood absolutely mind blown. And that's all man-made. But this, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, the armies of heaven. Try to imagine that for just a moment. This child was humble. He came from riches to rags, but he was celebrated by angels. He was a heavenly, eternal, all-powerful king. And look at what this heavenly host proclaimed. This is unreal. Look at verse 14 again. So all of this fanfare, all of this going on in the heavens, look at what they say in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. These are the, the two great purposes of this gospel proclamation, and the two great purposes of Jesus' coming. Number one, that God is glorified. They proclaim it, glory to God in the highest. Because this child is born, God is glorified. Why? Because this is the ultimate revelation of God's character. Through Christ, through Jesus, in the flesh, we see who God is. We see that God is a generous, merciful, gracious, true, just, loving God. Jesus says to Philip in John 14, 9, he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Through Christ, God is glorified in the most extreme way because in him we see the plan of redemption unfolded as well. We see God's power and majesty in Christ's resurrection from the dead. The first outcome of this good news is that God is glorified. Glory to God in the highest. Second, the angels respond by saying, 
on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The outcome of Christ's coming to earth is God's glory and peace on earth. Peace on earth. Numerous theologians point out that this peace is threefold. First, and most important, because of Christ, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. As humans who have sinned and rebelled against God, there's no greater need than our peace with him. He would be absolutely just in pouring out on us the full amount of wrath that we deserve. But instead, we get peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified or made right with God, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See this. Our peace with God comes through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith or belief or trust. Not by our good deeds, not by our family of origin, not by our traditions or our good intentions. Through Jesus, by faith, we have peace with God. So that's the first kind of peace he came to bring. Second, because of Christ, we have peace with ourselves. We have peace with ourselves. I'll just ask you tonight, do you ever have anxiety or guilt or uncertainty within your head or your heart? Christ came to give you peace inside of yourself. Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 through 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here we go, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you're looking for peace within yourself, there's no greater place to find it than in Jesus. He brings peace with God and peace with yourself. Third and finally, because of Christ, we can have peace with others. Peace with others. Not only does Christ's death, burial, and resurrection reconcile us vertically to God, it reconciles us horizontally with other humans. It also allows us to be at peace when we're wrongfully sinned against. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 tells us, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is realistic, right? Sometimes we can do everything in our power and still be unreconciled with someone. But look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 31 through 32. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God, in Christ, forgave you. Because Christ has forgiven us, 
We can be the most forgiving people on the planet. We can absorb wrath from others because we know that Christ has borne ours. We don't deserve God's grace, love, and forgiveness, but he gives it to us. So we can give grace, love, and forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. Christ's coming brings peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with others. And before we close, I want us to understand who this peace is for. One last time, let's look at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This peace that we've been discussing is for those with whom he is pleased. Who is God pleased with? Who is God pleased with? He's pleased with those who have taken refuge in his son. This peace is for the people of God. While this offer of peace goes out to everyone, it's only effective for those who receive him. And as corny as this bumper sticker might seem, it's absolutely true. No Christ, no peace. No Christ, no peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And the truth is this. If you don't know him, you can this very moment. You can have everlasting peace with God. And so I encourage you, come to him. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Born on a day, in a city, Savior, Christ, Lord. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Merry Christmas, everyone. Let's pray.